0: Hello and welcome to The Cupid Couch, the podcast about love, sex and relationships, both present and past. My name is Genevieve Gaunt, the creator and host, and you can find visual content to go along with the show on the Instagram at The Cupid Couch. And if you're new, I'd go back and start with episode one. Welcome. This episode is all about crimes of the heart. The English playwright George Bernard Shaw once said, When we want to read of the deeds that are done for love, whither do we turn? To the murder column. And Shaw is right. The violence and passion that love can inspire is legendary. Medea infamously murders her own children to wreak revenge upon her cheating husband Jason, and even the law has made allowances for violence committed in the name of love. There is such thing called a crime passionnel, a crime of passion. The crime of passion defence suggests that the crime was committed in the heat of passion, which makes it the opposite of mens rea, which is when a crime is premeditated. As a result, in some successful crime of passion defences, the result might mean a murder conviction is lessened to manslaughter or second-degree murder. In France, until 1975, Under the French Penal Code of 1810, French law allowed lighter sentences for crimes of passion. Article 324, for example, permitted the murders of an unfaithful wife and her lover at the hand of her husband. So, outside of the bounds of theatre, legally, it has been understood that love can make you do crazy and violent things. And as Shakespeare wrote in Romeo and Juliet, these violent delights have violent ends. This episode is all about exploring those violent delights. My guests share their perspectives on cheating and tell me their tales of infidelity and revenge. I speak to Australian author Kathy Lett, the actor and activist Rose McGowan, and trans activist and porn star Buck Angel. This episode also features a story from a friend of mine about heartbreak and suicide, so if you think this will be too much for you, please handle with caution. Love is a battlefield, and sometimes there is no white flag. And with that, welcome to the last episode of The Cupid Couch Season 1. This is Crimes of the Heart. The most common crime of the heart has to be cheating on a partner. But how? Nowadays, do we get satisfaction or recourse for being scorned and cheated on? You can hardly cry, I demand satisfaction, and leap for a rapier. The best thing us Brits probably have to hand is a pencil. Not so in the old days. From the classic tragedies of the ancient Greeks, such as Oedipus Rex, to the Roman playwright Seneca's bloody tragedies, to the Elizabethans, whose revenge tragedies are ever full of gruesome and inventive ways in which vengeance is served. And it's often served hot, literally so in Shakespeare's play Titus Andronicus. Titus captures Tamara's sons, who have raped and mutilated his daughter, and then cooks the boys into a pie and feeds it back to their mother, Tamara. Titus, taking the law into his own hands like this, is exactly what Shakespeare's contemporary Francis Bacon described in his essay Of Revenge, which he described as a kind of wild justice. But nowadays, with our veneer of civilization and our laws and consequences, once cheated on or humiliated in love, where does our fury go? Outside the parameters of a work of fiction like Gone Girl or a revenge Elizabethan tragedy, how can revenge be served? Well, my next guest has just such a recipe for revenge that really is a kind of wild justice. She is the Australian writer Cathy Lett. Cathy is the author of 20 novels, 14 of which are comic fiction, and her latest book, HRT, Husband Replacement Therapy, is soon to be published in the UK. Now, the story you're about to hear from Kathy is what I like to call the prawn story. And I'd even heard about this story before I even met Kathy. And so, of course, when we spoke over Zoom, I knew I had to ask her to tell me the prawn story in her own words. Here's Kathy.
1: Well, the prawn story is now an urban myth. But it, it's something that did happen to me, and I wrote about it. I fictionalized it in a book called *Girls Night Out*, which came out in the nineteen eighties. And uh, it's now become, I think, it's a, I think it's a trick that people employ on their um, exes as punishment. But this is what actually happened to me. I was about nineteen, and I was had a gorgeous boyfriend. But unbeknownst to me, he was cheating on me behind my back, and. Um, <laughs> So he broke up with me. It was as though I was wearing a sign on my heart that said, you know, in case of emergencies break, he completely shattered me um, and then kicked me out of our communal flat. Um, And so I did the only thing a girl could do. I started stalking him. And my girlfriend lived across the way. We were in Sydney at the time in Elizabeth Bay, and she lived just across from our building. So I used to sit with her and drink wine and we'd watch him through the binoculars. <laughs> and then we saw pretty much about a few days after he kicked me out, he moved, you know, his new girlfriend moved in, obviously been going on for a long time. And, and I knew her. She worked with him. So that just made it even like a trillion times worse. So my girlfriend and I just kept sitting there drinking wine, and then one night we got so smashed we decided that we'd have our revenge. And of course, I knew the, the super, what you call the superintendent of the building, because I'd lived there. So I told him I'd left some stuff in the in my flat, and could I go and get it? And he let us in, and we took over the prawns and we took down the curtain rail. And you know how the curtain rail has um, two little knobs at the end of them, and they're hollow. So we filled the curtain rail up with the prawns and we hung the curtain rail back up and then, and then we scurried away. And, of course, it was a very hot Sydney summer, so it didn't take long before this was like off the pong the smell. And um, he went mad looking for it. I mean, he started, we could see him through the binoculars. He started fighting with his girlfriend and, and she finally stormed off and then he started taking the wallpaper down looking for the smell. He started taking the carpet up. And this is the best bit. Eventually, he moved. And when the removalists came, they packed the curtains and the curtain rail. (laughs) So (laughs) this, you know, this smell went everywhere he went. So he's probably still got them somewhere. (laughs) So they say that, you know, um, revenge is a dish best served cold, but we served it hot. And it was in a hot, hot summer. And it was, it was very, very satisfying. I got, it cured me. I got over, I got over my um, addiction to him very, very quickly. So In Australia we have an expression where we say don't come the raw prawn with me, which means don't try and trick me. So it's got even a kind of added layer of linguistic, uh, you know, uh, meaning in Australia, don't come the raw prawn with me. So we did. It's such a great story and after I wrote about it, it became like legendary and now, you know, people, it has become an urban myth. So that's my contribution to um, worldwide female culture. (laughs) You know, What a feather in my cap, right?
0: Cathy's story reminded me of the saying, Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. The phrase comes from the late 17th century play called The Mourning Bride by William Congreve, but the original quote is slightly different. It goes like this Heaven has no rage like love to hatred turned, nor hell a fury like a woman scorned. Or, in the light of Cathy's story, should I say, Nor hell a fury like a woman armed with prawns. But sometimes people make mistakes. So, if you're unfaithful, should you tell your partner? Or should you sweep it under the rug and move on? I asked Cathy about the ethics of cheating. And if you are unfaithful, should you tell your partner? And she said... If
1: you're cheating, there's something wrong with the marriage, right? So... (laughs)
0: Yeah, I think you
1: have to. Then it's it's just a symptom because if when you love someone, you don't want to be with anybody else. But unfortunately, a lot of blokes think monogamy is something you make dining room tables out of. Um, and especially as a young woman, I mean, we found, I found that out in my twenties when so many guys I'd end up with it would turn out that they were married. You know, they don't tell you. It's not till you kind of find the teething ring in their pocket that you work out that they're ensconced with someone and then they try and tell you they've got an open marriage. Well, every man who told me he had an open marriage, there was a draft in that open marriage. The marriage wasn't really open, it was just kind of ajar. Um, So, and you end up being a mistress, which is, mistress is just another word for mattress. I mean, you know, the things they say to you, the lies they tell you. And um, it is the ultimate betrayal, isn't it? And Uh, What all my girlfriends, now that I'm of a certain age, a lot of them are being traded in for younger models. And um, the thing that they, you know, we laugh about it. We say, you know, why do men go straight straight from puberty to adultery? Um, And surely, you know, how can a man have a midlife crisis when he's never left puberty? So, you know, to be an adulterer, surely you've got to be an adult first. You know, we we just can't work it out. Um, So unfortunately, I do think a lot of blokes are sexual kleptomaniacs, but... You know, if you can be in a relationship where that's okay, and you can, you're if you're if the man's going to cheat, that's it, and she's going to ha- have some, you know, extracurricular carnal activities on the side, that's fine. But don't leave her thinking she's being faithful and, and giving up, not having any toy boys on her diet. You know, every, every woman wants a, a toy boy and a bit of bit of meringue. But if she's being abstemious and then finds out that he's been cheating, that's not fair. So you know, if some, I do know a few couples where they, they just kind of turn a blind eye and it's understood, but it's very rare. And also when you do have an affair, because, you know, for women especially we have such a strong emotional libido, you fall in love, you know. Sex is very powerful, especially if you're having good orgasms. And, and you do, you've, you've, how can you not get a, get a special bond for that person? And so, yeah, I think you've got to be honest about it. Um, and, but now from honeymoon to tomb can last, you know, 90 years the way we're going. And that's a long time to find somebody's anecdotes interesting. There's sexual routine <laughs> scintillating. So it is hard. But, I mean, maybe you just need to get married more or not married, but maybe, you know, relationships don't have to last that long. I don't see divorce as a failure. I see it as just a change. You know, you've had a, a good, strong marriage and you've raised kids. But there has to come a time where you think, are we still
0: well-suited? As Cathy said, honeymoon to tomb is a long time. Maybe that explains why, in a 2015 YouGov survey, one in five adults admitted to cheating on their partners. And then I wondered, what counts as cheating? Does cheating always have to be physical? Risk assessing your romantic options without actually doing anything, by keeping a conversation going with an ex, is something called micro-cheating. The journalist, Josh Glancy, wrote an article about it in the Sunday Times in 2018. As Glancy puts it, quote, No physical or even emotional boundaries have been crossed, but you're keeping options open, leaving doors ajar, indulging in being fancied. So I wonder, does that count as cheating? It certainly feels like a spiritual betrayal. It reminded me of a quote from Dorothy Parker, who nails the two-faced nature of lovers when she writes, By the time you swear you're his, shivering and sighing, and he vows his passion is infinite, undying. Lady, make note of this. One of you is lying. But what Dorothy Parker expresses is a skin graze compared to my next story. My next guest is my friend Tymon, 30 and a comedy writer. This is the story I mentioned earlier that deals with the theme of suicide, so it's really not for the faint-hearted. Here's Tymon.
2: So I can start with saying that my father, when I was four, um, committed suicide. So that was always a very interesting topic for me. So he was a writer and obviously back in the day, not having computers and stuff, everything was handwritten. So he wrote poetry and diaries and letters to people. And um, when I was about 10, I think my mom told me about this trunk upstairs that's so heavy that even now I can't lift it up because it's just full of paper. Poems and and, and diaries and then um, everything like drawing and, and art, I, Found these folders, and I remember sp- speaking to my mum. I was like, "What are the, what are these?" I was like, "Have you read these?" And she says that she, she says that the night that he died, or the night that the police came and said that he died, like she went through everything. And um, she's like, "Those oh, are the, those are the, uh, those are the, uh, the love letters to the other, the other lady." And so she's like, "Yes, that was the, that was the girl." That, but he he was interested in. And what, what happened was he was a teacher. So he was 30, my age, he was a teacher. Um, and he fell in love with a student. <laughs> so she was about, I think she was 18. Um, and he was 30, which actually doesn't sound, I mean, it doesn't sound as bad as I remember it sounding at the time. Um, but he fell in love with this, this girl and they just, I guess, just started exchanging letters. Um, and so the, the, we had this about three folders of records of him writing letters to her um, and her responses, and it was just this perfect, perfectly kept, like obsessively compa- kept diary um, of his life leading up until the day that he died. He would underline the, he would underline the paragraphs, and then put an arrow to it to say which colour he wrote it in. If he was depressed, he'd write in black, and if he was happy, he'd write in blue. And I think if he was, like, joyful or something, he'd write in purple or something like that. Um, so reading the typewriting copies, it was very interesting to see what he wrote in black and because ultimately he committed suicide to see how um, the colour changed towards the end. Um, and obviously it got darker and darker and then, um, then he, I think he wrote one last letter um, which was obviously all black <laughs> and, then, and then killed himself. Um, which is really bizarre. But I guess I guess well, it, I guess there's a story about unrequited love because it, towards the end, I think her parents started to think this is odd and they started hiding the letters. He received a letter from her father saying this has got to stop. And then there was no responses to his last letters, and that's when he went out of control. He didn't threat. He wasn't like he didn't threaten to kill himself. He just did it. It wasn't as if he was like, if you don't respond, I'm going to kill myself. He just sort of said, like, I just don't think that life's for me. Um, and I think the last the last thing I remember was a little drawing of a chess game with. His piece being in Checkmate, and I think it just said Checkmate. And then, and that was the last thing he ever wrote. I actually tried to get in contact with that woman. Because she doesn't know, that he, she doesn't know that he killed himself. She thinks he still, probably still thinks that he's alive. Because why would she know that? Because the parents started hiding the letters. <laughs> I don't care, I don't care about talking about it, but I don't, I don't want to be um too open about it because people would be like oh god you're open about that you should have been more private about that so he he stabbed himself in the heart with a bread knife what i remember hearing from my mom was that he went to argos and bought a bread knife for 40 quid which, again, I find fascinating. that You just buy a bread knife and sit down at Argos waiting for your number to be called. Um, I would love to see the CCTV for that. It was so weird, just patiently waiting um, for your doom approaching. Um, must have taken it home, wrote his last letter at his little wooden bureau, and then took it into the bath and did what he did. He was found in a strange position as if he was on his knees, which made it look like he was trying to get out of the bath. <laughs> now you see what I mean by, I can't, people probably get a bit weirded out when I'm honest about it, but I don't really care about talking about it. And I forget to mention that he was, this was at his mum's house. So my grandmother's house, Um, who had divorced my grandfather um, because he had eloped with uh, a fellow French teacher. She took the divorce very bitterly. Um, It was not her decision, it was his decision. Um, And essentially, as soon as they got divorced, made it her mission to slowly kill herself. (laughs) Smoked 60 a day to the point where the walls were yellow with nicotine. You know, she's sort, sort of, sort of, sort of women that would just sit—not literally, but you know, sit, sit in the attic wearing her a, a wedding dress, <laughs> rocking back and forth. She, she did not have a life after the divorce. She was madly in love with um, my grandfather. Um, she has now passed away from cancer, unfortunately. But anyway, she was a very, very odd uh, person, and my father did not like her um, at all, and they had a very Better relationship, and that's the reason why he he killed himself in that house. Um, he wanted her to he wanted her to to find him, and she was the person that found him. And I, I can't imagine what a gruesome scene that must have been. My uncle now, because of her passing, owns that house, so I go back often, and it's as if nothing has changed. They haven't. They ha- didn't change the bath for about. I guess 25 years. And it was the same as this horrible sort of um, avocado green bath <laughs> that he'd killed himself in, um, which must have been full of blood. And they just didn't change it. Who washes that sort of thing? Do the police do it? <laughs> uh, who, I don't understand any of this, but they didn't change it. Um, and the radio, the little, ra- like, proper old school sort of. That's what he was listening to his classical music on. And that's still there. It's still there on a little side table by the sink, and it hasn't moved for 30 years. Um, and the bath's changed now. It's now white, but everything else is still avocado green. <laughs> so it's just they just. Weirdly decided to change the bath twenty-five years later. If it makes any difference now, um, so it's just this weird, like, sort of a house out of time. Um, it's like a time capsule. As 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 the as the as the trunk full of writing is also like a time capsule. Um, but yeah, you know, strange family, very strange family. Um, whenever I'm there, I was sleep in. Um, Sleep in his little single bed, tucked away in his tiny, tiny room, with half the room is full with this huge, heavy wooden bureau, which is where he wrote his letters. And if I ever stay there, which I do, um, I sleep there. <laughs> a
0: chilling and tragic story and a literal crime against the heart. Timon's father's epistolary correspondence can be read because as Tymon says, he copied out his letters before sending them. And the passion of the language they contain is just as clinical psychologist Dr. Frank Tallis says it can be in these situations of hopeless, passionate, unrequited love. In his book, Lovesick, Dr. Frank Tallis writes, the language of unrequited love tends towards the cataclysmic, worlds fall apart and lives are crushed or ruined, and when unrequited love becomes toxic, rejection can kill. And it's often strangely comforting to realize that the same sentiments have been expressed centuries ago. In 1621, Robert Burton wrote the book, The Anatomy of Melancholy, as an encyclopedia of mental afflictions. In it, Burton writes, it is well known in every village how many have either died for love or voluntarily made away with themselves that I need not much labour to prove it. And history is sadly full of tales of such self-violence, triggered by love and unrequited love. One of these tales is that of Pablo Picasso and his friend Casagamus. Casagamus was also a painter and fell in love with a model called Germaine. But Casagamus apparently suffered from impotence, couldn't consummate his love, and as a result fell into a deep depression. After some months of agonizing emotional affliction, Casagamus held a farewell dinner party for himself and publicly asked Germaine once more to marry him. And when she refused, he took a shot at her with a gun, missed, then turned the gun on himself and died later in hospital. As Norman Mailer and others have surmised, it's thought that Casagamus' suicide actually inspired Picasso's Blue Period, triggered by the grief of losing his friend. Another such poignant and tragic story involves the lover of the painter Medigliani, Jeanne. She was so in love with him that the day after he died, she committed suicide by flinging herself, aged 22 and nearly nine months pregnant with their second child, from a fifth-story window. Her epitaph reads, Devoted Companion to the Extreme Sacrifice. These sad tales of suicides committed in the name of love are forms of self-vengeance. But what about vengeance done to others? And can revenge be anything but physical? My next guest is the actor and activist Rose McGowan, who was the victim of a metaphysical revenge. And by that,
3: I mean a hex. Yup. Here's Rose. I know I've had hexes put against me by, um... Like, the director's ex-wife, like, practiced black magic with, like, Mexican curandera witch doctors and definitely put, like, a hex against me. And, like, so I knew I was being, like, had people doing spells against me. It was just batshit crazy. (laughs) I mean, it seemed to work. I had a terrible seven years afterwards. Um, might have worked might have worked but no i don't i don't do anything like trying to get someone to love me or like me or no i don't think that far i've never met anybody i would do a spell for how did you how did you find out he told me the director so you met you met up with your ex no no he told me while i was with him oh so he had he had an ex-wife yeah yeah why and the ex-wife wanted him back or just hated me. One of the two. Usually, it was a really weird thing. Like people would be broken up with somebody for a while, and then the person would go out with me, and then their ex would just freak out and be like, "Not her, anybody but her," and they would freak out. This happened over and over and over again. It's a very strange thing. Wait, can we go back to this hexing thing? Because uh, you just slid that in there. I mean, that's I'm, some
0: weird. That's some
1: weird. I don't shit. know.
3: All I know is that someone put hexes against me and a curse on me, and I did have a bad run of luck for a long time afterwards so it could have worked you never know but you knew about it I knew about it so do you think that is what messed with your head you you no, because it was outside circumstances that were just horrible like horrible things kept happening to me and and uh like my face got cut open under my eye like just horrible things kept happening to me so I don't know maybe it worked or maybe that was in my head that that's why it was happening but I mean I didn't really give it too much stock and credence. But looking back, it could have worked. I don't know.
0: Practising Wiccans aside, you'd think magic and hexes and love spells would be a thing of the past, right? Not so. In 2015, Etsy had to ban the sale of magic on its site, saying that spells, hexes, curses, any metaphysical service that promises it will affect a physical change or other outcome, such as love or revenge is not allowed. Doing some Googling, you can still buy spells online. There are revenge spells and love spells, all sorts, and for a price. But is a revenge spell unethical? Do they really work? Well, to answer that question, I had to ask a witch, as you do. Here's Milin.
4: When people find out that I am a pagan or a witch or whatever you want to call me, um, especially men, oftentimes the first thing they sort of say to me is, oh, are you going to put a spell on me? And I kind of laugh, because of course, I don't want to disabuse them of this idea that it could happen at any time, and therefore they should behave themselves. <laughs> um, what woman willfully gives up her power? Um, but the reality is that um, love spells are a dangerous thing. And um, I don't know very many practicing witches who would say, you know, go, you know, run, do a, do a love spell to solve your problem because it's, as you will have seen in any, any TV show, any book, you know, about magic, the best intentions often go very quickly awry. And um, to understand why love spells are a bad idea, um, you have to kind of understand the basic moral rules that most witches, basic rules that we sort of live by most of the time, and the first one of those is called um, the, the Wiccan Read. And again, not all witches are Wiccans, um, but a lot of people sort of find this to be a helpful guideline. And the Wiccan Read basically says, if it doesn't hurt anybody, do whatever you want. They make it sound a little bit more old-timey. And if, if, if it harm none, do what you will. Um, but a modern interpretation is, you know, don't be an asshole. You know, do whatever you want, but if it's going to hurt somebody else, then don't do it. And that seems like a pretty like golden rule of thumb, you know, Um, pretty evergreen. The other is called the rule of three. Um, The sort of idea being basically a karmic law that whatever you put out into the world, you get back, um, which is similar to karma, but we add this little like extra oomph, you get it back times three. So if you put something a little shitty out into the universe, you get three times the shit back. If you put something pretty good out there, you get good back, magnified. So you're really incentivized um, to act in a way that A, doesn't harm someone, and B, that um, you know is generally putting more good into the world than bad. There are definitely people who see themselves as practicing on the left hand or on the dark side or whatever you want to call it. It's like lots of different words for it, black magic. Um, and who would, who would say, I do what I want, it's my free will, You know, if 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 somebody if I do something bad to someone, then it's because they had it coming, and it's I'm their you know their threefold response for something terrible they've done, and that's where love spells are a big no-no, because if somebody doesn't love you and you try to cast a spell or do a ritual to make them love you, you're inherently sort of breaking this really central rule to your existence. Um, and the idea that you'd be forcing someone to do something that they wouldn't naturally do will also come back threefold to you. So it's a, it's a dangerous game. And often what you'll hear stories of people who've done love spells, and then, you know, my feeling is that if you put something sour in the, the heart of something, if the seed itself is rotten, then whatever plant flowers from it will also be a bit rotten. So you might, you know, starting a relationship on a premise that's not based on mutual trust and freedom and free will. You know, even if you were able to make someone do what you wanted them to do, it would never be a healthy and happy and fulfilling relationship. So it's not one that you would want to be in anyway.
0: I think that even if you are a magic skeptic, the power of words and language in prayer or mantra or spell form work in similar ways. If you believe in the inherent ability of words to influence the universe, and you repeat something enough, those words probably will influence your universe. But when it comes to revenge and crimes of the heart, some people have not left their revenge to the metaphysical, to spells and to words. As Agatha Christie wrote in her first mystery novel, The Mysterious Affair at Styles* 1920, poison is a woman's weapon. And tales of poisonings against lovers and spouses abound in history, particularly in the 18th and 19th centuries. One such story is that of Thekla Popov, a 70-year-old Hungarian woman who in 1882 had been running a lucrative business as a husband hitwoman for years, selling poison and providing instructions to any unhappy woman who sought her services. And it was not just wives who sought out Thekla, but young girls who had quarrelled with their sweethearts and wanted revenge. Possibly my favourite story of ingenious revenge is from Roald Dahl's collection, Tales of the Unexpected. In one of the stories called Lamb to the Slaughter, her husband comes home to his wife and, as implied by Roald Dahl, announces that he is leaving her for another woman. The wronged wife bashes her husband over the head with a frozen leg of lamb, and when the police officers come round later, she feeds the lamb to them, thereby feeding the police officers the evidence. And romantic revenge is, like in Dahl's tale, often in response to infidelity. But why are we unfaithful? In her ever-candid way, Rose McGowan told me that she herself has cheated in relationships, and I got to ask her why. why.
3: Here's Rose. Oh, definitely cheated on people. But at the same time, I was like, I didn't feel like cheating. I just kind of felt like what I wanted to do. Is that selfish? I guess. I don't know, like, because I just don't like rules particularly. I don't it's not like I'm, if I'm really in love with somebody or ostensibly think I'm in love with someone, I don't, I'm not interested in anybody else. But when a relationship is on the way out and it's waning, there has been overlap, you know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. It's not like I'm telling someone I love them and feeling deeply about them and then running off and having sex with somebody else. It's more like uh, the transitional period.
0: So you're saying that it's actually just a litmus test for not being happy in that relationship?
3: I don't know if it's a litmus test as much as it's probably a way to get out of it, the relationship. It's like the final nail in the coffin kind of thing.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So you kind of detonate it as a bomb
3: just to clear it out. Well, they don't know usually. So you've never told them? Oh, no. God, why would I do that? I don't want to hurt someone's feelings.
0: So you do it for yourself. That's like a full stop. But
3: they don't know. Yeah, I suppose. Ha ha ha. I didn't say I was the best human being in the world. Um, it's not like something character wise to be like, yeah, I'm a sterling character and I never do anything wrong. That's not true. I, but at the same time, when you're with someone for a while and you're breaking up, it's not like the breakup all of a sudden happens one day out of the blue. Like if you're in a three year relationship, it's like probably a six month breakup. And in that six months, you meet someone else and, you know, and it helps you like, ah, okay. And a lot of times the other person isn't someone I am then in a relationship with. It's just like more the signifier of if I'm doing this, this means that I am really not into this relationship. So it's more of like a signpost. Did you feel bad about it at the time? No. And have you been cheated on? I'm sure. But you don't know for sure? Um. No but I'm sure I have. I mean, the odds, are, the odds are strong, right? How does that make you feel? Well, if I'm done with a relationship, I don't really care. If I was really deeply in love with them or thought I was in love with them or in love to the best of my ability, whatever that is, um, I'm sure I would be devastated. But usually if I found out anything or heard about something or heard rumors, it was usually towards the end and I I was already, the person's already kind of dead to me. So it didn't matter. I'm someone who's like, I'm the only, I'm friends with two of my exes, but most of them in the past really didn't, they didn't like me after I broke up with them. They would be really angry at me. And there's one guy I broke up with, good Lord, and I was 23 and he still hates me. I'm like, really? All I did was break up with you, you toad. And there was a reason I broke up with you, you toad. It's, you know, it's so but they, they like to blame like I was engaged the first time I was engaged a long time ago, to this famous rock star. Like he still goes on interviews and trashes me. And all I ever did to him was break up with him. That's all I ever did was grow out of the circumstances that we were in together and grow grow up and grow out of him. So they get mad when you leave them behind, you see. And they still like... It's like a punishing women thing. And I'm like, seriously, you're still hating me after all these years. It's so absurd. So do you think the men that you've... I'm going to use
0: terms men and women just for ease. Do you think the men that you've broken up with have behaved worse on the whole in the breakup than the women that you've dated?
3: Yes. I mean, my ex is a non-binary person and and, uh, they... uh, But is anatomically female. And turned out to be a con artist and a liar and all these horrible things. And um, it wasn't devastating because I wasn't in love with them, but it was, like, gross that I let that person touch me and they stole money from me and, like, lied about their whole history. It was just wild. It was, like, kind of more... Psychotic more than anything, but I think con artists they find you when you're down, right? And it was like at the height of all this crazy press stuff that this person came to me, and I remember saying to them like I can't imagine why anybody would want to go out with me right now, and now I understand why because she's a grifter. But um, they're a grifter. But it's other than that, that's like the only one relationship I've had where someone was truly like and sold a story about a friend of mine to the press. Like, just a truly gross person. And it had had me so hoodwinked. This person was a really good con artist. And I'm really usually pretty good at seeing that. So I was a little... To be fair, my mind was a little um, bent at the time. You know, I wasn't in my healthiest space in the world. I was fighting monsters in 2017, 2018. So it wasn't like a place... I thought I'd found a soft place to land. Instead, it was like one more person pulling the rug out from under me. But I don't... But I'm not a bitter person. I'm just more nonplussed. That must have been a huge shock. It was quite shocking, but um, it didn't come out of the blue. I had started having like suspecting that their stories weren't adding up, and and but they talked all the time. And I've broken up with two people because they talked too much. They talked all the time. Like so you couldn't have a thought in your head, you couldn't have a private moment on the couch. We were just like, Shut up. Right? I had this one boyfriend who just spoke all like she wouldn't shut up. Not shut up. And I'm like, I'm going to stab you with an ice pick. Shut the fuck up. So ultimately I just broke up with him because it was easier than stabbing him with an ice pick and going to jail. But in this it was more just like gross. Like what a gross I didn't take it on myself or berate myself for being with this person because i think sociopaths are just they're very much their own thing and they're really good at what they do you know they hone their skills and their craft much as we hone our acting skills what was the breakup like emotionally you said you weren't in in love with them no i was i was over it when i broke up with them and they sent a long thing of like I know I'm a liar, but I'm getting better and I know I'm this and I know I'm that and I was like, You're just a piece of shit, go die. Yeah, I've had a lot of um malfeasance uh directed towards me and bad behavior and, and liars and cons and you know, but that started even like with my mom. She was she was married to somebody that I was like, he was a huge con artist. She actually had a couple of them and I knew from an early age that they were bad news and and it's easier to see it with other people than it is to see it in your own life. You know, it just is.
0: Shakespeare wrote in The Taming of the Shrew, my tongue will tell the anger of my heart or else my heart concealing it will break. Rose chose to conceal her infidelities, but as Shakespeare said, sometimes concealing things is painful. So does that mean that splurging your infidelity is selfish? To tell or not to tell, that is the question. And a question chewed over by my next guest. Here's Maracchio, who's 34.
5: This is a tricky one. Oh, there's two ways of looking at this. Um, one is yes, um, you should tell your partner. But another way of looking at, uh, looking at it is, I know certain people that have done it, and they've only told their partner because they want to spread the guilt. It makes them feel better. So to a certain extent, I'm holding this in and I've, I've, I've cheated and I feel really shit and I feel really guilty. And then, oh, right, should I, I'm gonna tell my partner. And then they tell their partner and like, oh, I'm burdened with it. And their partner deals with it now. And then they're like, oh, but at least I told you. I, I was honest. And then they feel their conscience feels clear and they feel better and they feel like, oh, right, well, you know, I've told her it was the wrong thing to do. Or she's like, I told him it's the wrong thing to do. I've been honest. I didn't mean to do it. But, and then they feel a bit better. But what they've done with that is left their partner with their feelings of guilt and emotion and also made their partner feel shit. So it's a tricky one. Sometimes I'm like, yeah. And then sometimes I'm like, sometimes it is just so the other person can just feel better about themselves and get rid of the guilt. And then they've got rid of it. I'm like, well, I've told you. Like I do feel guilty, but I've told you either. And 90% of the time I guarantee you they feel much better. And then it normally gets to a point where um the partner can be like, Well, you know, I've done everything to show you that I still want to be with you. What more can I do? I'm doing everything. And because obviously the person who was cheated on feel they don't trust them, and then that and the other partner's like, well, what more can I do? What more can I do? I I I've shown you I love you. What more? Well, probably didn't do it. Don't do it in the first place, or just yeah. And so you, you get into that difficult situation then, and then normally that partner who did cheat probably goes off and <laughs> gets to someone else. And, The relationship ends because the partner who was cheated on might not be able to forgive and it always comes up in a relationship and the partner's like well i've told you i've told you i've done it i didn't mean to like when will you move on (laughs) because then they've just left it with them they're like you have it (laughs) and then if you don't want it i'll go off and just form another relationship with someone else
0: and it's my next guest who raises the question that these differences in perspective about infidelity may not just be personal, but cultural. Here's James on his personal experiences of cheating, the dangers of betrayal, and this issue of cultural differences, as laid out in the book Mating in Captivity by psychologist Esther Perel. Here's James, 27.
6: So in Mating in Captivity, Esther Perel has a chapter on infidelity, and she says that she notices a big difference between um, Americans and Europeans in the way that they approach sort of resolving infidelity, if you like. Basically, and basically she says that Americans prioritise honesty as this absolute ideal. They have a big emphasis on complete, full disclosure of what happened, regardless of whether that would hurt the other person or not. And that's the only way to kind of resolve it and work through it, is that you basically have to... Completely disclose everything, and then the other person has to completely, you know, hear that and forgive it, and then move forwards or decide not to move forwards. But in Europe, she says that um, sort of the opposite is true. That in some cultures, I think she, I think she picks Italian, although I might be um, imagining that. Um, but she basically says that in Europe, you know, there there's it's much more um, full of grey areas, and that it's you know the idea that full disclosure about cheating is the only way to resolve it is it's like not a good idea basically. And that that actually it's much more about deciding whether to disclose that or not. And also that people on both sides of the relationship, those being cheated on and those cheating might suspect what the other person is doing, but decide that, well, that's okay because, you know, they give me all this other stuff. And I actually don't want to know about what goes on with that person. And I think for me as well, more and more I think, I used to think when I, my last relationship finished and I I was cheated on a lot and I found out at the end all in one go. And it took me a long time. it, It was most sore because I thought, well, if you did that, it meant that you didn't love me. But I also know that I have sex with people that I don't love. And I have done, many times. And it's just that very, very strong coupling of the idea of, of, of sex and love together that I just don't really...
0: But he broke your trust.
6: Yeah, I think that's more what it is. It's, yeah. the, it's the lying, it's the putting, it's the sexual health at risk. It's that, it's that kind of stuff. And those details do matter. You know, unprotected sex with other people is pretty wild, if you're also having unprotected sex with your partner. That's re- I mean, that's, that's hard to get over. I found that, you know, that's hard to get over.
0: And was he, why did he tell you?
6: <laughs> I found out, I went on a sort of crazy fact-finding mission. Right. And then confronted him with a lot of...
0: Evidence? Evidence, <laughs> James said he found evidence of his lover's infidelity. I've heard stories of evidence popping up in the form of illicit messages coming up on the synced family iPad. But in medieval times, it was not an iPad that could be your undoing, but a magic cup. In Thomas Mallory's medieval prose work, The Mort d'Arthur, a book about the tales of King Arthur, Merlin, Morgan Le Fay, Lancelot and Guinevere, there exists a horn of fidelity that the witch, Morgan Le Fay, sends to King Arthur. She sends King Arthur this gold Horn of Fidelity, a.k.a. the magic cup, and this magic cup, this Horn of Fidelity, can tell if you've been unfaithful. As Mallory writes, a fair horn harnessed with gold, and the horn had such a virtue that there might no lady nor gentlewoman drink of that horn, but if she were true to her husband. And if she were false, She should spill all the drink, and if she were true to her lord, she might drink peaceable. A dangerous medieval dinner party drinking game, for sure. These are all binary oppositions, aren't they? Spilling your drink and not spilling your drink. Infidelity and fidelity. It's all very black and white. What if you work in the sex industry? My next guest is the trans activist and porn star Buck Angel. Now 58. Buck was born a lesbian woman and transitioned young. Buck's moniker is the man with the pussy, has been married twice, both times to women. So how do you navigate fidelity if you're a porn star? Here's Buck.
7: If ever my pornography were to affect my relationships, which it never has, thank God, because that does happen with people. They could be in a pornography or they could be a stripper or whatever, and then they get a partner and the partner's like, you can't do that anymore. It happens all the time with women sex workers. So that said, I have always been honest with my partners about my work, but pretty much they all know that's how they meet me. And, but, I, but I would have the conversation with them. And if it, re, it really felt like they couldn't handle it, we would have that conversation. But I've been very lucky not to have to deal with that at all. They respect my work. All my partners have always respected my work and always knew how important my work was do you have to assert kind of ground rules Mm, that's a good question and um actually no because i think we're both always my partners are very sexually open i have only really ever had even just sex partners where they're always so open so we'll always talk you know like let's try this or let's try that Communicate. number one thing for the best sex you'll ever have communication done. <laughs> I don't care about anything else. I don't care about the lube. I don't care about the toys. I don't care about anything. If you have communication and ladies, you've got to say this feels good or this doesn't feel good because I need to know if I'm sitting here doing this thing and you actually really don't like it, we're wasting time. Tell me, it like move over to the right or move over to the left or you can actually do that. And so I think really communication is the number one space to always be in when you want to have good sex or just sex. Like talk about it. Don't be shy about it. Talk about what feels good to you. That's what I do. Do you discuss your work at the dinner table? Does it make your partner jealous? Uh, For sure. I think there's some jealousy sometimes a hundred percent. There can't not be. I think that's a normal human space to be in. Um, I could get jealous about things that, it's just a form of insecurity. You know, jealousy is a form of insecurity and not understanding that that's what's happening when that ugly, jealous feeling comes up. That's like the worst feeling ever, jealousy. I hate it but it's, it's 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 a disconnect and it's not it's not connecting to the fact that in reality that's not going to happen but it's some weird fearful disconnect because open relationships are are very hard i will i mean anyone who has an open relationship and it's working i'm giving you a lot of a lot of love out there because it is not and people lie about this i'm i i i'm not monogamous and we have a you know a pan relationship and i guarantee you they're having some problems somebody always gets jealous somebody always gets jealous so what i did with my relationships is i said we will play with other people together we will never do it separately because the separate space, you're gonna think, what is he doing over there? And I'm gonna be thinking, is she having more fun than she's having with me? Those are all normal human thoughts. So together we play, we bring a play partner in and we play together. And that's how I did in my, in my last marriages. We played with people and how we had amazing sex and we had amazing fun, time and there was never any jealousy ever. Do you think that's an antidote to cheating? <laughs> On some level, yeah. But if you're if you're thinking of cheating, and you better <laughs> you better either get a divorce now or talk to your partner about why you're considering cheating. Because you know, that's the number one thing I will not stand for, cheating. I will not stand for it. I will leave you. I will never speak to you again. I find it to be so disrespectful and really outside of what I stand for. And I've always been very much that person in a relationship. I am. I need to hear from you. If there's problems, you need to say them to me. We need to have communication. So if you're cheating on me, it means you're not being honest with me about stuff. I I really dislike cheating. I think it's disgusting. And yeah, just a character flaw. It's a total character flaw.
0: I then asked Buck the same question. If you cheat, should you tell your partner? And Buck said.
7: So it depends. You know, here, I believe in honesty and I believe in openness. So for myself, that wouldn't work. But I'm going to say that there might be relationships where sometimes when things aren't said, it's for the best. But then the problem with that is you're always going to have this little secret in the back of your head and secrets <laughs> secrets never stay secret. I don't care what you think. Somewhere along the line something's going to come out and then it's going to explode. So is it worth it? You got to look at that. Like is it really going to be detrimental for me to tell you this or should I just keep it over here or should I be honest and talk about it? I mean, I think it's a person to person basis, honestly. But I would never, I would always say, I would always say something that's on my mind because I know that, you know, when you hold on to stuff, what happens? It explodes later on and becomes a really bad space.
0: Earlier, Buck said that he and his partner would play with a third person together. So this means that if you can separate love from sex and have emotional fidelity but sexual play, that could explain how some people are married and have lovers. It's a kind of sanctioned infidelity, a grey area between those black and white binary oppositions of infidelity and fidelity, as I discussed earlier. This dichotomy between a lover and a spouse is something that the novelist Santa Montefiore writes beautifully about. In fact, all her books are woven with the golden threads of love, passion marriage, adultery, regret and revenge. This one in particular, Songs of Love and War, really makes you question how infidelity can be considered a crime of the heart when the adulterous bringing together of two people really feels so emotionally, physically and spiritually right. In this extract, the novel's heroine, Kitty, and her lover, Jack, after emotional and physical turmoil, find each other again and have an extramarital affair. Santa Montefiore writes, Unable to resist, he sank his face into her neck and kissed her there. They both sensed an urgency now, an accelerating impulse to entwine so tightly that nothing could untangle them. Inhibitions had no place in this room, with he who had known and loved her for as long as they could both remember. He stood at the foot of the bed and unbelted his trousers. He ran his hands over the soft undulations of her body, as if he were the first, and she took pleasure from his caresses as if her trust in a man's touch had never been broken. As he made love to her, she discovered that this act was the manifestation of two people's deep and enduring devotion. And, very much in keeping with the theme of this episode, Santa Montefiore's latest book, Flappy Entertains, also deals with infidelity. It's now out and available in the UK. Most novels and characters have secrets. Secrets make for great drama, but they probably make for unhappy lives. As Buck Angel diagnosed, secrets are the problem with cheating. He said if you cheat, you're always going to have a little secret, which reminded me of that visceral Eminem lyric, under your skin like a splinter, and that's what secrets are. They lie under the skin like a splinter, and we feel that urge to remove the splinter, to expunge the guilt. All my guests have explored that dichotomy, to cheat or not to cheat, to tell or not to tell, to revenge or not to revenge. It's difficult to answer these questions. And in an increasingly godless world, people are probably more drawn to magic, looking for meaning in a world without a rulebook. And the rise of the individual and the emphasis on advertising and the pursuit of happiness, all these things have fed us with the idea that we have no duty other than serving our own lives. But all these stories of infidelity, heartbreak and even suicide maybe are a reminder that love can kill. And while you shouldn't suffocate yourself in a loveless partnership, people, all people and hearts should come with the packing tape on cardboard boxes containing crystal handle with care. But not all crimes of the heart end in tragedy. What doesn't kill you often makes you stronger. So, to end this episode, here is a poem by the Restoration playwright William Congreve, who writes about the aftermath of a breakup. Congreve writes, False though she be to me and love, I'll ne'er pursue revenge. In hours of bliss we oft have met, they could not always last. And though the present I regret, I'm grateful for the past. So if you're listening to this and are nursing a bruised heart or are the one who's done the bruising, perhaps this is a good mantra for love and for life. And though the present I regret, I'm grateful for the past. And that's the end of this episode and the end of season one of The Cupid Couch. Looking back over the episodes, I'd say that peeling back the pages of history and listening to my guests' stories, it seems that when it comes to matters of the heart, love, sex and relationships, both everything has changed and, quite comfortingly, nothing has changed. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends. My name is Genevieve Gaunt, the creator and host, and you've been listening to The Cupid Couch.